Good morning. I'm Kerry Brower. I'm the interim director and the chief curator uh, here at the Hirshhorn. And I want to welcome you all today to this symposium, which I guess in a way, it, 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 it's for the uh, art and destruction show upstairs called Damage Control. Um, but for me, it's not just a symposium that's attached to damage control. It's actually an extension, in a way, of the show. And I think there's a number of, uh, I don't think one can actually do a show about destruction and just do it in a hermetically sealed environment of the gallery spaces. I think that somehow we have to break out of those spaces and, and see the show as something bigger uh, than, than just uh, in a white cube uh, space uh, of the museum. And we're going to be doing this symposium today, but uh, Lena Kalinowska, our director of education, will tell you later this afternoon about a whole host of other programs uh, that we're going to be doing um, throughout the run of, of this exhibition. The um, idea of destruction in art goes a long way back. I think it goes all the way back in terms of art history. It's been used over and over again in art history. But right after World War II, in the immediate post-war period, first there was a, a very unusual thing, I think, that happened. First there was a kind of, the World War II was such an in, incredibly destructive period in the history of the world between everyone who died in World War II, the battles, the Holocaust, and ultimately the atomic bomb being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that the immediate aftermath in the war uh, created a situation in which you almost couldn't make art that matched the incredible devastation that took place uh, uh, during the war. And when artists did deal with those issues, often they did, they did marvelous work, but, but they did work, let's say, you know, uh, Fautrier, for example. They did war work, or Dubuffet. They did work that kind of wallowed in the decimation of war, uh, in the emaciation of the human being, such as Giacometti. And so for the first few years, you had this sort of sense of, um, you know, existentialism and just uh, the fact that we weren't going to escape the incredible um, uh, horrors that had happened during the war. But then something happened. And I don't know exactly why it happened, but it started to happen, I think, right around 1949, 1950 which is why we actually begin this exhibition at that period. And that was a sense that art could actually grab a hold of this destructive potential and use it in a positive way, almost like fighting fire with fire, actually negating the destruction in the world, pointing out the destruction in the world, and attempting to do something uh, about it. And so the exhibition actually explores that period, from that moment of a kind of hope coming out of art and literature and, and other art forms, music, and moving on, on forward. But they were years in which also there could have been the total annihilation of the world 
through nuclear detonations. I, you know, I remember myself, um, uh, I was in Los Angeles uh, growing up, uh, and, and I'm old enough to remember uh, the duck and cover drills that we had um, in the early 1960s, for example. Now, I was only, you know, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think I was 10 years old. But I remember playing on the street with my friends, and I remember, you know, having duck and cover drills uh, at school, and my friends, you know, we were all talking about, ooh, the world might end tonight, you know? We might all go up. And we were all completely, totally, at that age of 10 years old, 9, 10, whatever, we were all completely aware of the fact that these duck and cover drills were a complete farce, that the government was saying, yes, you would be okay if you just got under your desk at school. Well, anyone who's seen the films upstairs by Harold Edgerton knows that n n no duck and cover drill was ever going to protect you from what happened with uh, atomic bombs. So it's very important that art grabbed a hold of this. And when we say destruction in art, the reason we titled the show Damage Control is that it wasn't just about destruction. It's not about a bunch of destructive acts. It's about destruction being used to control the destruction um, in the world and being used in a whole host of ways, numerous ways. And we're going to talk today in this symposium with these distinguished panelists that we have here today who will be uh, introduced to you by Deborah Horowitz in just a few moments. We're going to talk about some of the approaches to destruction and the use of destruction in art. And we're also going to talk in the afternoon session with another distinguished series of panelists about the very bizarre uh, and very strange attraction that we have to the spectacle of destruction, that we're repulsed by it, and at the same time we can't look away from it. Anybody who watched the plane crash into you know the World Trade Center over and over and over again on television knows the way the media can actually play this sort of desire to see the spectacle um, of destruction. Um, I wanted to say also that this is an extension of the exhibition. The exhibition takes place here in Washington, D.C. And I don't think there's you know, a better city to do this symposium and this exhibition in than Washington, D.C. We need cultural dialogue here in Washington, D.C. We need to talk about culture, but we also need to talk about culture that talks about social issues, that talks about political issues. And most places don't do that. Most museums don't do that. And we want the Hirshhorn to be a place that actually does that. And we want the Hirshhorn to be a place that takes on exhibitions that maybe other uh, institutions might not uh, take on. I wanted to thank, first of all, a, a number of people, but first I wanted to thank Rafael Ortiz because last night, I don't know if anyone was here last night, but last night Rafael did an amazing performance uh, out on the plaza and uh, he did a piano destruction concert 
last night, uh, just like the ones he did back in the mid-1960s. Um, and uh, that piano has now been moved up into the first gallery upstairs. So if any of you have seen the show yet, maybe you haven't, but if you've seen the show, the first gallery was filled with um, nuclear detonations as filmed by uh, Harold Edgerton. But now it's also filled with a piano that's been destroyed. Culture that in some way has been undermined, but also freed through a ritualistic um, activity. And I think the two things juxtaposed together make a lot of sense. I first of all want to thank today all the panelists who've come and they will be introduced as I mentioned uh, uh, later so I, I won't introduce them, we won't do it twice. But I wanted to thank my co-curator of this uh, entire project um, and that is Russell Ferguson. And Russell um, could not be with us uh, this weekend uh, because he has a, a very serious family emergency uh, that arose. But I just personally want to thank Russell for being my partner in this this. We've been a partner in crime in this, a partner in destruction. I can't imagine, by the way, what the government has on me now at this point th through all the emails that we now know have been being watched uh, by the government that have gone out saying, hey, Russell, um, should we use this hydrogen bomb explosion? Um, shall, shall we send Liz Larner's piece that has TNT in it? Um, you know, I can't, I can't even imagine what's on me. I'm, I'm, if they come and take Take me away during this. Don't don't be surprised. Um, I want to thank uh, all the artists who came to uh, the opening last night and also are here today uh, to do the panel. I'm not sure who's out in the audience, but I do want to thank them all for participating in this exhibition. Um, uh, I know uh, Monica Bonpancini is here today and participating, and Ori Gersht uh, is here. I think Dara Friedman is here this morning, I believe. And, are you here, Dara? Hi. How you doing? Dara's got the center point in the exhibition. She's the beginning and the end of, of, of everything. Her work tears things apart, but it's not. It's actually putting them back together again. And I think that's the way you really end the show, is that this is all about putting things uh, back together again, not just tearing them uh, apart. Um, I want to uh, also uh, thank Joe Sola, who I think uh, may be here this morning as well. So th thank you, Joe. And I'm not sure if Christian Markley made it this morning, but, but thank you, Christian. I also want to thank John Hendricks, who uh, has come with uh, Yoko Ono um, here. And Yoko is here today, as you know, um, for the panel. Uh, John also was a participant in uh, some of the discussions. Um, destructive activities that happened uh, in the 1960s, and I'm sure you're on the list also at the government. So uh, we will be, we, for, for many different reasons, and we'll be taken out uh, together. But thank you, John, for your help with, with uh, putting this together. Uh, I want to thank our, all of our trustees uh, who are here. I know Robert Lehrman is here, and I'm sure some others that I can't see because of the lights are, are here. But these, but I do, the trustees of this museum, I have to say, are absolutely terrific. I mean, there are trustees in many museums that would never let me do an exhibition <laughs> like this. And I also have to thank the Smithsonian because despite what people think about the Smithsonian being a bureaucratic institution, and it is in many ways, um, they also let me do exhibitions uh, like this that require all kinds of uh, deviations from the, the norm. So, so thank everyone at the Smithsonian. Um, I want to very quickly
quickly thank the funders of this exhibition who also funded the panel today, Catherine Gleason and Timothy Ring, John and Mary Papa John, John and Sue Wieland, Melva Buxbaum and Ray Lerzy, uh, Lewis and Barbara Shrensky, Marion Goodman, uh, the Swiss Arts Council Pro Helvidia, um, Danny and Morella Levinas, Barbara and Aaron Levine, the Broad Art Foundation, the Japan Foundation, takes a lot of people to do a show like this, David's Werner, the Embassy of Switzerland, and Homefront uh, Communications, and Dan Salek. And uh, very much appreciate that. Uh, the panel itself has been put together uh, by Deborah Horowitz, who also put the book together. And I want to thank Deborah, who's laughing up front right now, for um, putting th this uh, panel together and everything she did uh, on the exhibition. Thanks very much. And to Kevin Hull, who did an amazing job putting the performance together last night and also uh, has worked on this panel today. And the whole education staff, including uh, Melina Kalinowska, uh, the Director of Education. And without further ado, I'd like to turn this over to Deborah Horowitz to, to begin the panel day. And thank you all for being here on this cold morning. And now Carrie will sit down and figure out why we were laughing. Um, thanks, Carrie. Uh, I wanted to say thanks also to you, both as interim director and chief curator, as well as the co-curator of this exhibition for doing such an amazing job. Um, I also briefly want to thank Kevin Hall, Drew Doucette, Milena Kalinowska, Val Monfrini, Reese Conlon, Larry Hyman, and all of our volunteers um, for their invaluable help with this event. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our panelists. Um, as Carrie mentioned, for the first panel, we wanted to take a more in-depth look at destruction in art. The importance of destruction as a pervasive touchstone and the many approaches and meanings um, of artists' use of destruction. We could not have assembled a better panel, so I'm so pleased they could all be here today. Dario Gamboni, who will serve as our moderator, is a professor of art history at the University of Geneva and a research counselor for art history at the Swiss National Science Foundation. He's been a fellow at CASVA at National Gallery, the Henry Moore Institute, and the Clark Art Institute, and has been a guest professor and lecturer at universities around the world. He is also a curator and an author. One of his best known books, which really was very formative for all of us in our research for this project, is The Destruction of Art, Iconoclasm, and Vandalism Since the French Revolution. Um, and he is also, most importantly, of course, a contributor to the catalog for this exhibition, which, for which we are very grateful. Um, to his left is Monica Bonvincini, who studied art in Berlin and at CalArts in California. Uh, she's a professor for performative arts and sculpture at the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna. She lives currently and works in Berlin. Her diverse range of works have been featured in exhibitions internationally, including the Museum of Modern Art in New York, Museum Tangli in Basel, Hamburger Bahnhof in Berlin, among many others. She's also been a participant in the Berlin Biennale, the Venice Biennale, and Prospect One Biennial in New Orleans. She's also created permanent outdoor works <clears throat> for the Oslo Opera House, and the, she received the Handball Plaza Light Art Commission for the 2012 London Olympics. And in 2012, she was awarded the Roland Prize for Public Art. To her left is Rafael Ortiz, who, as Carrie mentioned, mesmerized us last evening with an amazing piano destruction concert, the remains of which are, will be on view in the first gallery of the exhibition upstairs later today, so please do go upstairs and take a look. 
He is a distinguished professor in visual arts at the Mason Gross School of the Arts at Rutgers University. He, of course, was a participant in the historic Destruction in Art Symposium that took place in London in 1966. He has done mixed media ritual performances and installations for museums and galleries in Europe, Canada, and the United States, including the Whitney in New York, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, and the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and most recently at the Hirshhorn last evening. His works in film, video, and sculpture are included in collections around the world, including the Pompidou in Paris, the Museum of Modern Art, the Whitney, and the Smithsonian. In 2009, he was awarded the National Association of Latino Independent Producers Pioneer Achievement as a Filmmaker Award for a career that extends back to his first 8mm films back in 1957. In 1969, he founded the El Museo del Barrio, which was the first museum of fine arts entirely devoted to the art and culture of the Puerto Rican and larger Latino community. And we're very pleased he's here with us today. Yoko Ono, who is distinguishable on the left, far left, is a conceptual artist whose work encompasses performance, instructions, film, music, and writing. She had her first exhibition of her instruction paintings in 1961 at the AG Gallery in New York and also held her first performance at Carnegie Hall that same year. In 1964, she published the book Grapefruit, um, instructions from which are upstairs in the gallery, which has been very influential. And there's also a film from her 1965 Carnegie Hall performance of Cut Piece in the gallery as well. She was also a participant in the 1966 Destruction in Art Symposium. In 1969, together with John Lennon, she realized Bed In and the worldwide War is Over If You Want It campaign for peace. Her artworks are included in museums around the world, including the Hirshhorn, to which she donated a wish tree. Her numerous solo exhibitions, including traveling shows organized by the Museum of Modern Art in Oxford and the Japan Society in New York. She's had solo exhibitions at the Serpentine Gallery in London, Moderna Museet in Stockholm, as well as her most recent retrospective, which was organized by the Schoenkunsthalle in Frankfurt and is currently touring in Europe. In 2009, she had an exhibition at the Belvalacqua Foundation in Venice, and she received the Golden Lion Award for Lifetime Achievement from the Venice Biennale. In 2011, she was awarded the prestigious 8th Hiroshima Art Prize for her dedicated peace activism, and in 2012 received the Oscar Kokoschka Prize. In 2007, she created a permanent installation with her Imagine Peace Tower in Iceland, and she continues to work tirelessly for peace with her Imagine Peace Project. It is my, camp, my true honor and privilege to pass the microphone over to Dario Gamboni, who will start our discussion. Thank you. start by thanking Carrie Brooke and Deborah Horowitz and Larson Effect. Uh, that brings us back to the 60s. So, and everybody at the Hirschhorn for the kind invitation and for taking such good care of us. Um, I'm delighted to have been able to see this exhibition and to attend Rafael Ortiz's performance. I think the exhibition marks a date in the history of exhibition around that theme and also in the history of the reflection uh, upon it. And I'm glad that we have the opportunity with this panel to, to go on. As for the catalog, uh, it looks great, but it needs time great. to be ready. Yeah, well, thank you. So, um, I'll briefly introduce the, the panel by saying that art 
uh, in a sense of what we call art, has always been connected to destruction, uh, including its own destruction. And when, a few years ago, I tried to give a, a sort of overview, or at least a broad perspective upon that, and I was looking for a proper uh, conclusion, um, I came to the metaphor that the history of iconoclasm accompanies the history of art like a shadow. And I ended by saying, like a shadow bearing witness to its substance and weight. Uh, and I think that I was reminded of that uh, by looking at the piano destruction, thinking that, that indeed it also uh, bore witness to the substance and weight of this uh, object, even if the object itself was not meant to be supposed to be a work of art. Now, that, that history of the relationship, the close relationship between uh, art and destruction includes representations for a long time, mostly representations of violence and destruction. One may only think in religious art of depictions of martyrs, and we may think of that in, in the show, uh, watching Christian Marclay's guitar drag, where the guitar very much plays the part of a sort of, of matter. Um, and we can think also of battle scenes in history painting, uh, which was for quite some time the highest genre in, in art. And especially since the, 19th, the 18th century, the aesthetics of the sublime had put great uh, weight to the fascination with catastrophes, both natural or man-made, volcanic eruptions, uh, deluge, massacres, etc. And here I think that uh, Monica Bonvicini's Hurricane and other catastrophe series could be seen in that longer, uh, long durée uh, perspective. Uh, in the aesthetics of the sublime, um, they combine fear and safety, a distance and catharsis. We can, we are allowed to feel the fear, but to enjoy it because we are removed from its actual uh, grass. Um, however, I think there is something new and maybe a deeper connection between destruction and modern, and the history of modern and, and contemporary art. And that uh, has to do with the importance of the notion of progress and innovation, seen as crucial, as necessary for art worth the name since the 19th century. And therefore the need to break free from the past, from models and from traditions, and one could uh, put that in, in a short phrase, for instance, using the nice quote by Kirk Varnadou about modern art, uh, a fine disregard of the rules that was about the invention of the rugby when somebody took upon himself to take the ball and run, uh, which was strictly forbidden under soccer rules, of course. So break the rules. Or I like also to remember the, the poster of a, a demolition company I discovered in the streets in Chicago, which said, breaking into the future. And that notion of breaking into the future was still very strongly embedded in us, I think, uh, expresses that, that notion. So we may think of futurism, Dada, um, before the, the First World War, which we'll soon remember, if not celebrate, another extraordinary uh, destruction, amount of destruction, but also after the war. And I believe that I like the idea of damage control. 
However, which is positive, so that's nice, but I also think there's a more complex, sometimes more disturbing and more ambivalent, certainly, relationship between destruction in art and destruction as art on the one hand, and destruction in society at large on the other hand. It can be a relationship of representation, emulation, parody, critique, sometimes all of that together, and sometimes it's rather difficult actually to figure out. And it, this started again indeed in the, in the 50s, in the 60s, after the trauma of the war, the th under the threat of nuclear annihilation, but also very much as part of the questioning of all rules and conventions. And a climax or crystallization of this was reached in London in 1966, uh, and then for a shorter period of time in New York in 1968 with the Destruction in Art uh, Symposium. And since we have the privilege of having here two or three participants in this event, I think we could start from, from there. So my first question, uh, and, and first to Yoko, who I understand is breathing under her unusual <laughs> couvre-chef, uh, and to Raphael, is 1966 is, after all, already some time ago. The event was well publicized. It, it did strike a nerve, uh, especially in London, but not only at the time. But then it was largely forgotten, at least in the history of art. And for a long time, what did not speak much about it. So Christine Stiles wrote about it, but frankly, not so many people. And then it was interestingly rediscovered, and it's currently very visible and, and quite topical, as testified by this exhibition, which will even more contribute to it, but I mean, you did not invent it. It, it, it was there. So um, why is that? Um, why these variations going from visible to invisible to visible again, and, and how do we feel about that now? So that would be my first question. And again, I turned toward uh, Yoko and Raphael, so who wants to, to start? Your, your opinion about that? Well, I, I, I could say that uh, a lot of normal collectors had a difficult time with the idea of hanging a destroyed couch over their couch. <laughs> right. And uh, certainly someone who studied piano would have difficulty with that piece in their collection. And I think it's about the marketplace. Okay. It's about the auction houses. Not so much about the galleries, because you can have a show at the gallery and never sell a piece and get a few lines in some magazine. So I, I think that the marketplace plays a very important role in terms of the uh, recognition of an artist and a movement. I think that's, that's a fundamental. We, the, I think the Destruction Art Symposium uh, was like a research project. Uh, in a sense, uh, a research project with a theory that isn't necessarily popular. It's sort of like discovering that, that there's a, a virus that causes uh, disease. Right? Or just even the common cold. I, I would say that the whole idea of destruction, if we're going to deal with it in terms of popular uh, sort of response, um, I believe that the scientists have much more recognition if we understand the process of art as beginning in the beginning uh, with the Big Bang, you know, and then moving through their galaxies, black holes, the fact that we are constantly destroying and creating to survive. I mean, we have an antibody-antigene system. 
Uh, we digest our food. We're constantly chewing everything to pieces and digesting things. So it's, it's a process that already is part of our, our lives. And in a sense, uh, the, which kind of destruction survives is the issue. Whether we're talking about war or whether we're talking simply about indigestion. <laughs> Yes, thank you. Uh, I was thinking about the question about the market because, um, but on the other hand, the market in recent years has been quite strong in the art world, also in defining what is important, what is visible, what is shown, and so on. So uh, originally, uh, for instance, uh, Gustav Metzger's uh, very much also saw DIAS as an assault on the market, on, on dealers, and even on collectors, and uh, as a way to produce art that would resist uh, commodification. And clearly, the market has not disappeared, has not, it would be hard to say it has been defeated, but uh, still, on the other hand, it has become at least easier to be recognized as an artist and even to make a, a living as an artist without doing enduring things uh, that you can uh, keep and, and, as you said, put, put on, on the wall. Um, so this, I guess, is one aspect of that. But may I ask Monica what she, she thinks about why, what would be the reasons now for this, again, topicality of an and, uh, renewed topicality of the theme of destruction? Uh, I don't know if it's really, I don't know how it was in, back in 66, but I have the impression right now that, um, I don't know, lots of people who go to art institutions or to museums to see art, they do expect a sort of um, uh, provocation. So, I mean, it, I, I think it has become maybe not more difficult, but it's a different approach now, I guess, uh, for that artist to take toward the mar art market, but also towards, you know, what, uh, was, what the expectations are from the art world, meaning museums, galleries, and so on, um, when it comes to about, you know, I mean, I always associate uh, destruction with revolt. So uh, for me, it's sort of the same. How do you revolt if everybody is expecting you to revolt? You know, um, and uh, and yeah, I don't know. How, I mean, yeah, it's true that you can also have a lot of uh, shows in galleries where you can destroy everything and still not selling. But on the other side, I think compared to the 60s, maybe um, you will never show in certain galleries if you're you know, not adapting or at least, um, you know, giving the market what they want to. And I mean, what they want, it's a little, <laughs> it's maybe a different question. But um, I think the idea of, um, yeah, of revolt is becoming a little bit more difficult also because maybe it has been theorized a lot in the last years and it has been accepted as a, you know, as other concepts like beauty or sublime or what you said. Um, so you mean it may have lost its edge? Or, or when it becomes an obligation, then it uh, is somehow put on its head? 
it's a little hard to say, but I uh, I had the impression, I always had the impression that in the 60s, I mean, for me, I, I put a lot of um, romanticism in the 60s, right? Because I think uh, they were fantastic times and, you know, people were free to do what they wanted. It's, of course, not true, but that's how sort of uh, uh, grew up with the idea of, and um, where I think it was possible to, to really make statements that were important and uh, that became historical, um, like you want to did, like you did, you know. Um, I don't know, I don't know in the art, what can you do today, in 2013, mm -hmm. that can have the same um, uh, substance and the same, mm -hmm. uh, that can really break into the future and stay into the future, not only, you know, breaking the glass ceiling and then it closed again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's that's a, that's a question. Now, uh, since we are uh, thinking about this uh, historical distance and the uh, element of reenactment or reappearance, there's also the question I think of, of, of generation. And within the destruction in art theme, there's also an element of uh, intergenerational competition, if not actual warfare. Uh, we are. Uh, happy we are uh, to, to have Rauschenberg's, Robert Rauschenberg's erased Kooning drawing, which is quite, uh, it's really a monument. I mean, I think it is meant as a monument, but it is a monument, so it's extraordinary to, to see it after seeing often uh, reproductions of it. It has entered the public collection not so long ago. And, um, and it, it is, uh, it can be interpreted as an homage, strange, but an homage to the Kooning, and of course it was crucial that the Kooning was asked uh, not just to accept, but to provide the drawing, and he, he chose to, to uh, give a drawing that would be, as he said, difficult to erase. So there is this element of homage, but of course there's clearly an element of aggression as well. Um, against the generation of the abstract expressionists, which was very much dominating the, the art world and, and was something that you had to also fight against and, and fight your, your position uh, against. And already the futurist in, in Marinetti's 1909 first manifesto, um, Marinetti called for the demolition of, of museums and libraries, but he already also foresaw that younger creators would come, would rise to attack him and his fellow futurists and they would have to. So um, they would have actually even to kill him, to kill them, he said. Yeah. So, um, so where are we uh, here? Because we have already this piling up. I mean, this, this quite, it's, it's a long history and of radicalism or thinking about radicalism. And um, again, I guess it cannot be the same whether we started doing that uh, already in the 60s or, or, or more recently. So how do you feel about, about that? Or is it possible to be all happy together um, within the, uh, the destruction and there's enough room for everybody? I, I, there certainly is enough room for anything if we see what's going on in Congress. Uh, anyway. <laughs> I think that there's a range of activity, for instance, uh, in terms of the notoriety or the shock, uh, like, let's say, the Viennese uh, actionists. Uh, I think the distinction between one of the actionists uh, climbing a ladder 
and shitting on stage uh, versus an American artist who cans his bowel movement uh, and exhibits it. Uh, I, I think that the canned bowel movement would sell, but the bowel movement on the stage would just, people would run on to clean it off. And, right, so that there are, there are, in a sense, marketplace concerns. Again, an artist who wants to sell work uh, keeps that in mind, and that I, I call the general practitioner. I make a distinction between an artist that's a general practitioner who concerns himself, herself, with the marketplace and what is uh, acceptable, and uh, might even go around and look at galleries and look at magazines and organize their involvement in a way that will entice that buyer. Okay, and then there is the uh, theoretical experimentalist who also might be in, you know, somewhat wacko, insane, uh, viewed from the outside, who's involved in all sorts of theoretical notions about where art comes from and what is a work of art. But it's possible to become part of art history but be ignored entirely by the marketplace. So I, I make that distinction. It's not that, an, in other words, an artist that wants to be historically relevant isn't necessarily an artist that sells lots of work and is popular, you know, differently than anything. You know, I have a dentist that's very popular, but uh, he, he's not contributing anything new or radical to dentistry. need to for your teeth, I guess. Well, I'm still waiting for my dentist to design these two teeth that um, are missing here from one of my axe wings. Oh, oh gosh. Oh. So, yeah. uh, and, and so I, I, I tried to barter with him. I said, you know, do you have, do you have a piano that I can... Good idea. Uh -huh. He should be interested. But uh, he said, no, no. no. Uh, he's too shy. No, but I think his drilling teeth and taking out cavities and so on, I think this is a kind of destructive creative. In fact, I had to spend uh, three months removing all of the mercury from my teeth. He said it's very important to do that because the mercury affects your nervous system into yeah. your old age. Yeah. And since I'm getting old, so I had it all removed. Yeah. And he replaced it with some sort of plastic. Yeah. So he undid what his colleagues had done in exactly. the first place. And, and, but then yeah. he had to undo what he did. Oh, himself? Because he put in a plastic I was allergic to. Uh, well, there's no end to it. Yeah. So maybe we could move to the... There's a gender issue also here, because uh, the usual stereotype is that uh, violence is something made by men, I mean, mostly. Uh, and women tend to be regarded as victims in that, in that context. Um, and, of course, this can be also thematized, and I think of uh, Yoko Ono's cut piece, which very much... Uh, also showed vulnerability and, and then the violence is so far as the, the cutting was violence or sort of metaphorical violence was done by others. Women as well as, as men granted but still. Um, but on the other hand um, you have um, 
PP Lottieriste's uh, film uh, ever is overall in, in the galleries where it is a woman who breaks, in that case, the uh, window shields of, of, of cars and with this great joy and uh, exhilaration under, by the way, the benevolent gaze of a female uh, police force because this is in Switzerland and th that's the way it, uh, things happen there, as you, as you know. Or, uh, I think in, in uh, Monica Bonvicini's video, uh, uh, hammering out that it is a female arm, if I understand correctly, which is uh, hitting with a hammer against the wall. So we also have uh, that, and of course one is reminded of Nikit Saint-Fal's uh, shoot paintings, where also, and it was important that she, as a woman in this, in this white garb, also was appearing as the one who enacts violence. Now, of course, it's generally seen that this was against patriarchy, so this was a, a returning violence, an explicit violence against an implicit violence made by men. But so my question is, now after decades of, of feminism with various, in varying forms, with various degrees of, of success, and at a time when unfortunately women are still indeed very often the victims of, of violence, one may only think of uh, recent news from India and so on, but it's not the only place by far, or think of the spread of rape as a political and military weapon uh, all over the world. So um, how would it stand now in, in relating this issue of, of violence and destruction and, and gender? So I, turn, I mean, that's a question for all of you. But now that I see Yoko, maybe you can... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that you think, what's she doing here? I mean, she's totally opposite of um, uh, violence and uh, all those things. And she may not want to come to this kind of show. I really think that the more I think about um, what we have to do uh, in order to make a peaceful world, uh, these are very important questions. And uh, when you, you talk about damage control, there are two kinds of damage. One is uh, the damage that we get from nature, maybe, and the other is a controlled damage that people are, are putting on others. And the thing is, uh, Gustav Metzger uh, was a child of uh, two Jewish parents. And the Jewish parents had to stay in Berlin, and they died. Uh, they went to Auschwitz, and they were taken to Auschwitz, and they died. And there was a program at the time uh, in England where uh, they would rescue some children, Jewish children, from uh, Germany and, uh, and adopt them. And Gustav was one of them. And I don't think he ever forgets that all his uh, work, artworks, brilliantly, brilliantly expressing what happened and the pain that people go through in a situation like that. Um, the, the most recent one that I saw was that um, it's just a piece of cloth on on the roof, uh, well, on, the, on the floor. And uh, in order to see the painting, painting, photograph actually, you have to crawl and go inside the cloth. And you have to be part of that particular photograph um, of Jewish people um, being taken to Auschwitz. And so 
you actually go inside and then you are actually touching and scraping the photograph in a way. And I thought it was brilliant. But his work is like something like that. In my case, um, I, I remember that my uh, <clears throat> great-grandfather was assassinated and the whole of Japan was totally upset about it. Even now, uh, once a year, uh, people can go to where he was assassinated. And, uh, and he's a very respected uh, historical person. And then I, I met John, and, and John just looked at the photo of my great-grandfather. And I never told him, in fact, I feel a bit guilty that I never told him about my background. But when I saw that photo, I just had to say, oh, that's my great-grandfather, you know. And he said, well, that was me. <laughs> so I said, don't wish for it, John, because he was assassinated. Well, John was too. So I have that experience of um, being the one who who's left and feeling an incredible amount of guilt and pain as well. But uh, I think one day, very soon or already, that all of us are under controlled damage. And we have to somehow sustain ourselves, survive all this together. And I think we can if we use our brains. We have brains, you know. <laughs> but also, some people think that, oh no, brain's not controlling. It's the body that's controlling us. And uh, my family, uh, the owner's citizen, was already in the turn of the century of 1900. Was thinking about the fact that it's not the body that controls us, it's the brain. The conceptual reality of the brain creates the body movement, creates things, all things on, on earth, maybe. And so um, I was, my work is in that tradition in a way. I didn't think that I was controlled so much by my uh, family history, and I thought that I was ex escaping that and being a rebel and all that. But now, after being 80, when I think about it, oh, they were doing that, <laughs> you know? It was a very strange feeling. And, uh, but um, in Diaz, what I did was, I was not interested in body damage. <clears throat> I was more interested in what makes the body damage, which was the, the brain. So that um, one of the pieces were whisper piece, which I whisper a line to somebody, and it goes on being destroyed, changed. That to have a line changed isn't poetic death justice. Uh, justice, maybe. But the thing is, it's not so, so much poetry, but the fact that we are controlled by that. Some people realize that they can control us by changing the lines. War is peace, <laughs> love is hate, that sort of thing. 
And so I was fascinated with that. Well, I thought that uh, the, the male artists were all much more interested in <laughs> expressing bodily damage, expressing bodily violence. And I thought that that was uh, the, uh, the second level of what we do. We first control ourselves with our heads. And therefore, if we don't control ourselves with our heads, somebody else is controlling us. And one day, not one day, very soon, they will complete it. If we're not going to stand up together and fight it. To have, to fight it means to have a clear head, clear logical head, to know what is going on. And anybody who knows what is going on, even just a little bit, like an elephant's tail, stand up and say it. And don't feel, oh, I shouldn't do this. I don't want to be killed. If all of us stand up, it's very difficult to kill us all. And in fact, after all of us are killed, they're going to be very lonely. <laughs> they don't even have servants. <laughs> like us, you know. Thank you very much. So, may I ask also Monica, yes, about that? Because I think it's important in your work as well. Yeah, going back to... Um, to the gender. Yeah, and going back to what you shortly said yeah. about... Um, I must say, when I, in the 90s, I did quite uh, fast one after the other three video installations. One was called Wall Fucking, the other one, House Frau Swinging, and the third one, Hammering Out an Old Argument. And in the first two video installations, um, you could see in the videos... Um, naked female body and uh, in hammering out which is a projection you see just an arm uh, hammering against the wall and I mean that was in the 90s and uh, I would say 99.9% .9 of our critics and our journalists wrote that I was the naked woman in the first two videos and that the arm hammering the wall was a male um, uh, arm. And I thought it was so funny because, I mean, uh, I wasn't the naked woman in the two first videos. I was making, um, uh, I was the director, so I, I was behind the camera and so on. As also Pippi Lottierist in the video, she's not herself, uh, you know, going around happy, you know, summer day breaking cars. Um, but a lot of uh, people, I mean, our critics understood somehow that there must be this must be some feminist art, and feminist art has, has only something to do with the body. Mm -hmm. And as we know, all the feminist artists from the 70s were naked all the time. <laughs> <And> <laughs> dealing with their own body and so on. And it was really, I mean, sort of upsetting for me because in the first two videos, where you see the female body, you never see the, um, the face. So I had so many people coming to me and say, oh, we finally see the face. <laughs> Assuming that you know my naked body, which is totally somehow <laughs> strange. And, uh, and the 
actually in, in Hammering Out it's the only video I did where I was, I mean I was really doing it, it's my arm. Oh, it's your arm. It's my arm, oh, but it doesn't, I know, somehow it doesn't really, but it doesn't matter, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean in Hammering Out it, it didn't really, it was not about gender, you know, uh, it was about, you know, what does it mean to, to break something or not okay. to break and Hammering yeah. Out doesn't, you never really mm -hmm. see the hole into the wall. Mm. Uh, but also that video uh, got understood as a feministic uh, you know, statement, which was not. And also in the 90s I got uh, offered more than you know, three times at least from museums works of other artists. I remember once uh, they offered me, they called me up and they offered me a solid wheat cube. <laughs> they said, well the show is over. Don't you want to do something with it? <laughs> um, then they offer me the same with uh, Bruce Nauman, uh, with Leon Gillick. So it was a strange time where you know they were offering me to destroy artworks of some other male artist and uh, because they assumed I had just fun in you know smashing things or like I don't know I was against big uh, male heroes and I would love to physically attack them and uh, I don't know just <laughs> kind of um May I say something? Yeah, please. Because the way I spoke about it and the, the, how I was feeling at the time and all that, I think that I dispense <laughs> the two, late, two beautiful artists here <laughs> sitting and doing something that's very interesting. Um, I like what Monica does because as a human, as a woman, that we're always being uh, attacked or raped or whatever. We are always in a passive situation, but she turned it around and made it into what a woman can do. And I think that was beautiful, and I really, we are, all women are getting the benefit of it. Ralph, on the other hand, uh, he, in this jazz situation, which was a very, uh, uh, well, courageous thing maybe to do, but he was putting a diaper and rolled over on the platform. And uh, we were just, oh, okay, you know, and he would say mommy or daddy or whatever. And he went back to LA and he met Arthur Jenner, uh, who was a psychiatrist, psychologist. And he was talking to Arthur Jenner about his experience in London. Well, you know, this is what happened. And he started to choke up. Cried or choked up. And, and Arthur Jones just saw that. And made him go through it. And, well, this is something that was in Arthur Jones' book, The Introduction. But that's when he discovered Primal Scream. So he created history, inadvertently or advertently. I mean, this his body movement, his body uh, expression as an artist, created one of the most important uh, psychological historical document. And I, uh, I respect that very much. So both of you are something that I think that artists should be doing. <laughs> and it's great. And I really think that we, all of us artists, 
can do things that could touch people, motivate people, and be a very large uh, force to create the next future, I mean, create that future. Thank you. Um, I'd like to go on with the uh, activity passivity subject, the agent patient, because another stereotype is that destruction uh, is something in which humans uh, are the destroyers and they are active and the objects then are, are destroyed and they are, and they are passive they are treated like inert matter so um, if we think of the piano destruction the piano could not defend itself although it resisted uh, and yet um, it has a voice and I believe that the fact that it has a voice is crucial I imagine in including in its choice as a target. Uh, the same um, applies to the guitar in Christian Marclay's guitar drag. It has very much a voice. It can complain at least. Um, and also they have a body and they have this void inside uh, which enables the sound, something like a, um, a breathing to, to go out. So they are quasi-human. So we can at least project, but it's not only project because they are man-made objects that are meant also to transmit uh, a voice, a breathing and, and an expression. And um, I think in another piece by Raphael Ortiz from this early time, Chair Destruction, I think before um, demolishing that chair, you uh, talked to it and reproached it with having accepted that somebody else sit on it and that was wrong. And so in a sense, the chair being destroyed was punished for having done, or at least that's what you uh, su suggested. And uh, I was struck by, by the way, uh, it's always also great exhibitions because you really see the, the, the objects. You don't just hear about them or see reproduction and it's a complete different experience. And so looking closely at, at Monica's two um, paintings on paper from this uh, Hurricanes and Other Catastrophes series to see how the liquid, uh, the ink, the dripping and the splashes in a way emulate uh, the natural disaster, the inundation, and the way that this is all of this liquid which is out of control. It's precisely only very imperfectly controlled. So we may try, but whether we succeed is another matter. I was also quite struck by Dara Friedman's um, piece, Total, which I, I knew only from uh, videograms and which is brilliantly placed because there the ambivalence becomes a sort of cycle since it's between the beginning and the end. But I, I found this extraordinary. It's a sort of slapstick in a sense and the comparison with slapstick is meaningful because the essence of slapstick is that objects revolt against the control that humans try to impose on them and then they, they do all sorts of things that you don't expect them to do and, and you have a hard time uh, with that and to see for instance the plate springing out of the mirror into the hand of the character and, and, and then being placed on the table is something completely shocking and, and completely uh, really questioning about our relationship between uh, 
us and, and the world of things. So my question is to, to all of you, um, what role do you attribute to objects, materials, things in these actions? And maybe we could start with Raphael since you had that, uh, that uh, how should I say, uh, uh, energetic and physical uh, encounter with the piano yesterday evening. It's still fresh in your hands and memory, I guess. It was heartfelt and emotional. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to go back to, to an important point that Yoko was making about the social context. Uh, I think that the, uh, the art process, if, if we can leave the familiar cultural uh, gallery, social, auction house framework, uh, art process is something we all own. I mean, we all dream four to six times a night, and uh, those are kind of amazing process. Uh, we even dream in the mother's belly. So uh, the whole notion of, of what is art is, I think, a critical question uh, in that uh, a political process is uh, also uh, an art. And uh, um, how many of you have seen the movie Max? Max. It's a movie about a, a, uh, a gallery owner uh, in Germany uh, during the time of the end of the First World War. And uh, a particular uh, soldier uh, that was very uh, political, but wanted to be an artist, uh, but very much involved in politics and uh, flirted with communism and then socialism, and uh, was approached by uh, some of the military uh, to support a right-wing movement. And, uh, but he wasn't that interested because he wanted to be an artist. And he even applied uh, to a few art schools that rejected him. And in fact, a few of his paintings are over at the Pentagon. And uh, Max brought him to a, a situation of artists who were involved in performance. And he was really amazed by the, uh, the power that he saw uh, in this artist, uh, these artists' work and performance. And, uh, and he said to the uh, gallery owner, he said, that's the future of politics. And of course, out of that grew the entire uh, Nazi madness. Uh, that person was Hitler. So I often when I'm on committees, I want to make sure certain people do get into the art school. <laughs> The idea of, of how culture is, is an aesthetic and how it organizes our minds and how our minds then organize our activity. I mean, certainly in recent times, we've seen how uh, that whole aesthetic within politics has been operative and all of you have been affected by it in one way or another. Um, I'm not implying anything about Cruz, so. <laughs> Uh, I'm just saying that it's important for us to understand 
that what seems like something we truly believe is being really very important and motivating us to do something that we feel really heartfelt about may be entirely destructive to ourselves and people around us. But without that understanding, we have sort of a truth condition that leads us to believe that what we believe is in fact the truth. Okay, and artists are involved in the same process. The question is that that process we engage, are we lucid enough about it? Do we have an introspective intellectual understanding of it enough to understand if in fact that process is contributing to our being a more successful human being within the social framework or a less successful one, meaning affirming life or negating it, however subtly. In other words, art is going on all the time, around us all the time, in our lives all the time. Whatever culture might say art is, that's only a tip of the iceberg of what art is. That we ourselves are great works of art in progress. But these days, you know, so many people artists. It's incredible. I get like 50 uh, announcements of uh, art show every week. <laughs> and it's great. It's really great. It's going to be something because uh, even activists, you know, uh, in old days when John and I were activists, we looked around and there were not too many people who were activists. But now, I think that if somebody's not an activist, there's something weird and nerdy about it. <laughs> and it's, uh, and we're going to really make the next beautiful world together. And I'm so excited about that. Uh, I think that uh, some people believe in doomsday. And uh, I get there, it's like, Yoko, are we going to have doomsday? Well, it's up to us. If we're so dumb that we want to create doomsday, we will. But it's what we create, what we create. And of course, we want to survive and, and have, uh, enjoy a beautiful world. And we're going to do that. So we don't have to worry about that. But we have to worry about our fear and hesitance and uh, a depression. A lot of people are depressed now. And I think that we should just shake off our depression and get together and and feel so proud and so glad that we are making a beautiful world. There's so many beautiful things now, if you look into it. And you, you can pick up those things and we can do it, I think. I would connect. Please. Uh, because I like very much the word depression. Um, <laughs> I wanted to just um, uh, say a short anecdote. I've been invited some years ago to a group show in France, in some frac, I don't remember which one, with a fantastic title, um, Walls to be Destroyed. And um, so there were different artists in the show and uh, at a certain point I received a totally hysterical email from the director of the FRAC uh, with some pictures. And she's so sorry, she's so sorry, she doesn't know it could happen, but um, the students of the art school close to this FRAC went to visit the show and they took the title very literally. <laughs> So 
that destroyed everything. I mean, all the artworks in the show, including a beautiful Mata Clark um, sculpture and so on, was, were totally destroyed. And uh, on the other side, I remember a friend of mine in the winter some years ago, he, invite, he sent an invitation for a party and it was um, called um, the Depression Party. You know, it was November in Berlin, it's cold, everybody's depressed, let's have a depression party. <laughs> I went. Um, there were not so many people, I must say. <laughs> but I mean, if I'm invited to a depression party, I don't go there being depressed. <laughs> and the same if I, if I go to see a show called Damage Control, or let's say World to be Destroyed, I don't go there and I destroy everything. Just, I was just wondering, I found it very interesting what happened there, actually, at this frack, because um, and there were students, and I, I mean, uh, that's something maybe I will research one day, but I was really thinking, what does these students and young people who want to be artists, I guess, um, why did they go to a show and destroy all these works? You know, is this like the last ultimate um, institutional critique sort of form? You know, or is it like really plain, I don't know, like a Facebook party, let's come and everybody's going, right? Yeah, what's to be destroyed? Yeah, sure, let's mm. destroy everything. Mm. Funny kind of. Yeah, um, well, it's hard, I guess, to answer without uh, doing some yeah. field work. But um, something like that had happened already in the 19, I think it's, it's in the 50s, to Man Ray in Paris, where there was a show, it was in a gallery of uh, Dada art, and that included several works by uh, Man Ray, including his object to be destroyed and that's the metronome with the picture of Lee Miller's eye going like that and he had made it saying that at some point uh, he thought that what somebody should look at that intently and when it, were, it became unbearable and have a hammer at hand and when it became uh, unbearable uh, smash it so it, I think it disappeared or anyway and so what he did was first he redid it one, but he called it uh, undestructible object. <laughs> And then he claimed for the insurance uh, money. Uh, and, there's, and in his memoir, there's an interesting account of the uh, discussion between Man Ray and the insurance person who says, OK, we'll pay you the metronome so you can redo it. And Man Ray says, well, listen, when a painting is, is destroyed, you don't give to the artist the paint and the brush and, and the canvas. So I want, no, this work was insured, and therefore, uh, the, the worth of it. And uh, so, and since indeed the works had been insured for a certain amount, so the market and the collectors are there, uh, he did get the money and the insurance person said, well, but with that you'll be able to buy quite a few metronomes. And, uh, and Manway said, well, no, no, I will buy just one, and, but again, I will call it indestructible. And he said it was for him also quite a discovery to say that certain things, especially ready-mades or the like, aided ready 
coordinates can be destroyed since you can take another one. However, one must add he also made a limited edition of that sort of thing. So it's a bit more complicated. But, but I don't know. But of course, aggression, uh, I myself have studied that a lot. And it's true that one, one must always think that there's a world beyond the world of art, art lovers, etc. There are people out there. And, and sometimes they understand things differently. And they may, uh, they may experience as aggression something that was not necessarily meant as aggression and certainly not aggression against them, but it can happen. And culture sometimes does uh, act as a sort of violence, implicit violence, and there are people who resent that. So it does explain for quite a few. I, I once studied an exhibition that took place in 1980 in Switzerland where half of the works were, were damaged, but it turned out, listening to the people, that what had been seen by the organizers as going out, bringing out into the streets, to the people, so a sort of an act of generosity had actually been felt by many people. It was still after the result of the oil crisis, so there was a lot of unemployment. It was very hard. It was actually resented as a sort of imposition and, and a, a sort of uh, invasion of public space. So it can be complicated. But speaking of public space, um, I think it's interesting that you have been active also in public art uh, and even uh, uh, received the prize for that. And, and how do you see the connection between uh, public art and the expectations that go with it uh, often, not always, but also of things that are enduring, that are meant for a public that is broader than the art world, and this issue of uh, destruction, if I may ask? I made, uh, I mean, actually, first, I don't, I, I have a very uh, controversial, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't feel very easy with uh, public art. Um, I remember many years ago they invited me to a public art uh, show and it was in a small city in southern Germany and I, it was a very horrible little town and I thought so why should why, why put some art here? <coughs> For who? And very often you know, as an artist you're invited to go places that you don't know at all and then you have like one afternoon or two hours or maybe two afternoons to sort of get the feeling of the uh, place and do, I mean propose something that might stay there forever even. Mm. And I think it's kind of strange. And anyway, um, I, I remember this guy, the curator who walked around with me, he said, well you know, we're doing this because uh, the because the people in this town, they really love art. I couldn't see that, I mean, but I don't know. <laughs> but the question is that, I mean, I, I, I guess everybody likes art. The question is, like Leon Gillick said in the video that I made actually out of that, of that project, is what kind of art do people like? And that's a question that it's really, really hard to, mm -hmm. to answer, especially when you do uh, public art, because you cannot go around asking everybody or making like a, you know, you can spend, I don't know, many years by the time you're done or you have to start again because they change the mind. So, mm. um, well, Komar and Melamed did these sort of surveys and they, then they made the art that everybody likes because it was, it was a mixture of everything. It was hilarious, but, <laughs> but, but it was not meant for public art. to respond to that. There, there are often public arts that occur somehow by themselves without direction from gallery saying, you know, come here and destroy things mm -hmm. and it's all acceptable and in fact we applaud it. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
There was an exhibition on one of the small islands on Manhattan. Um, it's close to the one where a lot of the refugees came in, and like Ellis Island, mm -hmm. kind of yeah. close to that. And it was a large exhibition of outdoor work, mm -hmm. hundreds of pieces. And uh, one of the artists uh, in the evening, one night, this is the, all of the works were set up, and this one artist was completing a work. And the parachute piece, the breeze that comes across the East River was supposed to inflate the parachute and move. And uh, he was working, and uh, some automobiles uh, pulled up, three automobiles, and he thought uh, there were artists to come to sort of finish off and look. And the whole idea was a public exhibition. There was no entrance fee. He just came in and appreciated the work. And it was uh, about night time. And uh, these people came towards him, cursing him and carrying on. And uh, they seemed to have been really rowdy, kind of drunk. And, and he became really frightened. And they chased him around. And finally, he, he had built this uh, platform that the parachute piece was on, and he crawled underneath the platform, and they couldn't reach him. Oh, good. But they could reach all the artwork that was there. And so uh, I had a piece in the show, and there were many artists uh, that had two and three pieces in the show. And they started swinging baseball bats at all of the artwork, threw some into the ocean, demolished all the work. And in the morning, uh, the artists, of course, heard of it. The police came, and the artists were there looking at all of their work. And they didn't invite anybody to destroy their work. And. Uh, I went there and I looked and it's just like a field of demolished work and there were a lot of work thrown into the river. And the only piece that wasn't destroyed was mine. Oh. <laughs> Why? So, so did you feel guilty about it? No. I felt a survivor? This, this need to reconcile, you know, this anger. Mm -hmm. Somehow I, they looked at my piece and it was reconciled. <laughs> Fantastic. So you should you should also have received a prize for public art. <laughs> well, that's the whole idea that all of it became public art. Yeah, indeed. But actually, just very short, uh, because I received this public art piece, mm -hmm. not because I'm doing public art, because actually I did only two pieces, ah, and yeah. since you know mm. permanent though, but um, because the jury. Decided, I was thinking about what is public art, and they enlarged the public art into into the museum's place. Mm. And I did uh, installations in museums um, that sort of brought in uh, I don't know a different kind of public and mm -hmm. and so on. So. Uh, be careful with this public art because it was not only about really classical public So now art. that the word public has come around quite a bit, I think it is time to open the discussion to the public. So we have microphones that can move and I think we could have more light so that we see each other. And I forgot um, to mention Charlotte And Mormon's I already see uh, a hand, so Charlotte that's great. Mormon's public. So please try and speak yes. loud and clear. Yes. So, and what else? And into the microphone, of course. Now that. Hello, uh, thank you very much for this very interesting conversation. I have just a comment, actually, not, not, not a real question, but I was really fascinated and interesting by the fact that, speaking about destruction, it was always 
balancing between the physical distraction of objects of, or, of art pieces uh, or, and the, the, the distraction of the, um, the uh, process of creation. So, like Raphael put it, that the, that the art piece is just a part of the iceberg of, an, of the, uh, the process of creation, which is just uh, is not all what is the creation. And Yoko, you talked also about the fact that uh, we should be aware of the mental distraction that uh, we can be submitted to. So it's more like a comment, and I, I would like to maybe, if that is a question, ask how um, how can this uh, how can the material distraction uh, that uh, is shown in pieces of art uh, also in the in the show can also be the metaphor or related to um, uh, more and uh, another kind of distraction uh, distraction the, the distraction of humanity values or poetry or things like this so if that can be in question thank you oh, thank you so the mental and the, and the physical so does anyone want to um, or do we um, just take that as a comment? Yeah. No. My my uh, my doctoral dissertation was about the uh, the inner vision as a as a work of art. In other words, your thoughts and what you imagine. But to create a process where you could, in a sense, let go of the uh, familiar sense of yourself in consciousness, kind of like the dream state, where a lot of dreams happen that perhaps when you were, you know, daydreaming may not occur, which might shock you, or might you might find very enticing and interesting. But what interested me was the fact that you can, in a sense, recognize the whole notion of trance as an important process in art, that there are cultural trances, that there are political trances, that there are all kinds of trances. And I was interested in using that process so that you can reconstruct, in other words, deconstruct and reconstruct your psyche so that you literally can recreate yourself within a context that would move you forward into your humanity. But how could you bridge your sense of your history as you understand perhaps your history being in this one time so that within the entrancement, let's say you lay down, you put a balloon between your legs and you do this sort of kundalini breathing and before you know it, you're off into some daydream state and then I suggest you find a mother 10,000 years from now, place yourself in her belly, be born then and experience it and experience all of the positive things and all the strengths that you can and then come back into this time. Okay. The simple thing would be, for instance, to go back to when you were five and have a discussion with yourself. Walk into the room to the five-year-old and say, don't get frightened, it's you and the future. It's a very interesting thing that I thought that um, it's such a drive to have to cope with certain things about people. So I would just stay in my apartment and, and send out emails. But then I realized that going to a place and meeting people, which is a very hard thing for me to do really, but it's a totally different game 
because I'm sitting here. I might be saying something, I might not be saying something. There's a lot of uh, editing being done in my mind, maybe. But everything that I have here, which I gained in 80 years, so more than that, I don't know, but it's yours. Yours to take, and you are taking it without my control, and uh, it's a frightening feeling. But that is most important, I think, for all of us to be able to just sit and all my cells in my body is already communicating with you, regardless of whether I like it or not. And I wanted to create that situation to, for us to move into the future. And that's why I'm here. <laughs> uh, instead of being my apartment, which is a very comfortable <laughs> thing for me, and writing a kind of cute letter to you, which I can do, and I do too. And um, I selected, I selected here, Hoshon uh, Museum, uh, with Kerry doing this thing and all that, and I thought, I gotta go. And it's just a feeling. I don't go to all the places that uh, ask me to come because I, I just couldn't, you know, physically impossible. And uh, for me, it's very important that I do that, and it's very important that Ralph is doing it, Monica is doing it, we're all doing it, regardless of us, because actually we are very shy people. You'll be surprised how artists are. They're shy and don't really want to, you know, be subjected to bashing or, or criticism. So that's what it is. And then, when I'm at home, or even when I'm not at home, but even when I'm around breathing, um, many times I just empty my head totally. How you do that? <laughs> how you do? <laughs> how you do that? <laughs> I don't know. It seems that it seems like that is the uh, the core of meditation. Mm. And the very interesting thing, I, I don't want to sound. I, I don't think I'm going to sound like what I don't want to sound. But um, all Asian kids, for some reason, they know it. And um, when you ask a question or something like that, the, the most typical thing about an agent is that there's a little space, a little silence, and then they would say something to you. Because in that silence, they're in the meditation, and they have to come out to listen to you mm -hmm. after you said it, sort of repeating it, and then think of an answer. And so what they're doing is they're meditating walking, meditating eating, meditating talking, meditating dreaming. And that is very different from uh, the Western idea of not uh, creating space. I think we have a question here and then another one. Yes, please. Uh, I, I was wondering if uh, your, your discussion on, on public art that was put out in the public and then destroyed uh, not as part of the art makes me think of, of the, the work of Banksy in New York this week. Uh, 
or this this past month, where you know, put it put a piece of art on a wall, and then immediately people who have been doing similar things, like graffiti artists in an area, will go and, and essentially destroy it or, or add on to it and tag it. Um, could you could you speak partially to that, and then partially to the idea of graffiti artists as a destructive mean, or at least a transgressive form of art on society? Hmm. Maybe I could say a few words. I think that graffiti art or graffiti in general is in a peculiar situation to the extent that uh, transgression, including appropriating a space uh, to which the uh, author of, of the graffiti is not entitled to, right, is part of it. So to that extent, um, it is an act of transgression, and although there's a long history of the legitimation of graffiti, it goes back to the 18th century, you have collections of graffiti and so on, nonetheless, it tends to retain that sort of uh, ambivalent position where the same thing can be both hailed as a great work and even possibly connected, taken away to be and so on, and, and, and yet at the same time can be denounced as a, an aggression, a transgression of property, a defacing of buildings, and so on and so forth. So you have this, this bizarre um, situation, and then you have the answers sometimes of authorities giving, uh, putting at disposal uh, walls that are made to be used, but of course then it makes not much sense for those to whom graffiti must be. <coughs> you see what I mean? So I don't think, it's a sort of conundrum uh, for which I don't believe there's an exit and probably there shouldn't be. It's interesting that um, one of the persons, uh, galleries, who has been very uh, influential in promoting graffiti arts, I mean, as a form, on, also on canvas, is Tony Shafrazi, who used to be an activist uh, uh, artist, and by the way, he started again doing things, and I saw that in, in Basel recently, new works of his, but then became also famous or infamous by spraying on Picasso's Guernica uh, during the time of the protests against the Vietnam War. So there, there you have these, uh, these connections that are complicated but interesting. But so these are well, I, on my side. Please, like but, yeah, thing, you know him again. You used the term tagging. I think that's where it begins. And because it originally had to do with territories. It had to do with gangs marking territories, saying, you know, this is our territory, so don't mess around in here. Um, you'll be dead kind of thing. And I think that it went from those simple tags and became more complex in a sense that the gangs, after a while, gave permission to particular people. And then there were those people, in a sense, to create the conflict with that gang from another territory, wanting to expand their territory, would come in and over-tag kind of thing. So we see that as the beginning. It, it then became, in a sense, a, a departure from that where individuals violated that process. And, would then, and they would call themselves graffiti artists. Okay, and, and of course they were especially uh, interested in going to places where the gangs, they weren't territorially marked in order to do their graffiti art because otherwise that literally would be a dangerous thing for them to do. And then finally it ends up in the galleries and so on. And it reminds me very much of what happened to the art of the Australian Aborigine 
The Australian Aborigine, their art originally, in order to use any of those signs and symbols, and certainly in the caves, with the shamans, uh, was a real violation and you would be cursed and endangered. Anyone see the movie The Wave? Okay, good, a few of you. There's an example of that process. And to the extent, it's sort of like believing in the, the sort of the voodoo kind of thing, uh, you, you know, or the witch thing, you know, you get a pin put into you and then you really have problems. So if, if you can see tagging, originally, if you want to uh, find a, a, something in nature that relates to it, it would be equivalent to the animals that sort of come into your yard and piss around. And, and then they keep other animals around unless they want to contest that animal that pissed around, and they would piss around. And then generally, in the middle of the night, you'd go, and all of that kind of stuff going on. So in a sense, it has a lot to do, again, with the mind. The, the more uh, uh, visceral sort of sense of, of place and, and self is very uh, emotional by... More like that. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know. <laughs> That's the piano. I think it's the, it's the piano for them. You have been eating. <laughs> so again, it, it's the there is, is a more what we in quotation a more primitive sort of notion of of place and and property and being that has nothing to do with the social context of wait a second that's my building that's my wall. No, it's our place. You know, it's our territory. Yes, please. I'm just totally frightened by what Monica said. How do you do it? I mean, it's just like, and then I thought maybe being overtaken by something like music, beauty. Okay. That is not your mirror, but mm -hmm. I mean, I whenever I feel depressed or uh, getting in, seems like getting into a situation of fight or something. I just look at the sky. Because it's so beautiful, and it's always permanent. It's the most permanent thing in my life. But the sky, me. the sky in Berlin is always gray. The people over Berlin, right? I think, please. Uh, many of the um, themes in society today have to do with globalization, fragmentation of societies, and I'm thinking especially of the way in which the phrase creative destruction has now, uh, out of capitalist processes, has now become almost a dominant establishment theme, if you will. So I'm interested in how then artists react against what has be is becoming, I think, a trend of seeing destruction as a way of removing poor people, marginal people, in order to build these edifices, buildings, um, uh, you know, capitalist monuments to wealth. Thank you. Hmm. That's a good question. So, yeah, I, I uh, please. Uh, that's a conundrum. I, I, because artists sometimes are, are dealing at a kind of more therapeutic, if you want to talk sort of theoretically, a therapeutic level, that if uh, it's sort of like in child therapy, if you have a child that may uh, endanger your home by creating a fire in, in their, on their bed that spreads through the entire house. And so in a therapeutic context, they make fires in a bathtub, you know, within, as they visit, you know, the therapy 
therapist has an area where they can make little fires and then talk about them and what their meaning is and somehow deconstruct that. But uh, to do that within a politic is, uh, as we can see, is almost impossible. Okay? It's, it's uh, in itself as a process. The politic itself is where it begins and then it extends out into within whatever colonial sort of notions you might have. But art, there's a therapy, you know, why, why did you, you look at the early art and you see all of these naked women and you could say, well, of course, you know, it was a patriarchal framework and everyone, you know, all the men want to look at naked women. And, you know, you can think of that as a kind of infantilism, that, you know, the need to do that. Because uh, I, I'm curious about the notion that within an art context, the women always take off their clothes and the men always put on more clothes. You know, but anyway, to, to, to deal with, with, with the issue you bring up, it's an almost impossible one. Otherwise, you're, you're simply proselytizing yourself then. You're, you're saying, oh, I have the formula, I'm a magician, I can create an artwork that will somehow neutralize your colonial desires. And that won't really happen. I, an example would be someone, uh, how many of you seen the, are going to see the 12 years in slavery? Uh, okay, there's an example. Do you know that there are uh, people who would like to see slavery occur again today who will watch that movie and enjoy it? And why would that be the case? Anyone have an idea? If you make a painting of someone being whipped in a slavery situation, why that painting may not be bought by a slaver and hung in their living room? Do you, can, you can you see that? Can you imagine that? That for them it would be viewed as something that affirms their notions, just as someone would hang it and say, it affirms my notion of the end of that. So it's a double-edged sword. But um, I would like to add something. I think that the, of course, the uh, indeed the the recent the crisis from 2008 onwards has given this uh, idea, uh, which has been here for quite a, a long time, that uh, creative destruction is the essence of capitalism. But it has given quite a bitter edge to to that, and the destructive element has come very much to to the fore. Um, and it's nice to think that art, by itself, by its nature, resists and criticizes and questions so on. But uh, that's a feel-good thing, frankly. I'm not sure all art does that at all. And I think that uh, quite a bit of art, including avant-garde art, neo-avant-garde art, and the one we celebrate in our books and exhibitions, has been uh, somewhat complicit and has actually also contributed to this notion of the tabula rasa and the he heroism of getting rid of the past and let's go through it and so on, breaking into the future. And that should be questioned as well. The futurists uh, called for a new world, etc., and they, they asked for the war. They wanted the First World War. They, they were started. fascists. Right. Well, fine. They were great, and they were great mm -hmm. artists, and we celebrate futurism as an important moment in the history of modern art. So that must be seen, too. So I think, again, some questioning and self-questioning is in order, and I think that's a very good question. Hi. Um, 
you mentioned, Raphael, that art goes on around us all the time, which is true, of course, and we were fortunate this morning to witness a mini performance piece by Yoko. So my question comes out of that framework. Yoko, could you explain for us, as the artist, what you were thinking or going through? And then as panelists, as you're looking at that as artists, what did you see meaning that type of thing? Just reflecting on that moment. Brain power. Well, we all know about brain power. And suddenly, because we were all worried about other things that we weren't thinking about it, but now all the magazines, did you notice that it's about brain? And it's really going to the right direction, I think. And we should not be cynical about it. We just keep on learning. I am so glad that I'm still alive because I'm learning every day. And I think if I didn't know these things and died, what would have happened? <laughs> but really, there's so much to learn. And it's, uh, you know, we're going to be very busy. And our brain is going to be bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> And you'll be like those, you know, people in the drawing that the, the mask person who has huge head and tiny little uh, legs and arms because we don't have to use them or something. Yeah. I think we can take one more question, but not more. So I see a hand there. Oh, there's oh, there's okay. another one. Well, I'm sorry, but just one. Because yeah, that person is with Yeah, okay. So my, um, I was also very taken with um, Yoko's small performance piece, and I wish it could have gone on longer. No, okay. But um, my question has to do with intention and perception. Can you say it a bit louder? My intent, my, I was also very taken with your small performance piece. I wish it could have gone on longer, actually. And my question has to do more with intention and perception. And specifically in performance art, um, does the, how does the disconnect affect you? Uh, does it really matter? Or is the intersection of the two where the art really happens? Well, performance art is very important, I think. And it's very different from the, the kind of plays, theatrical plays that we have. Because it has a kind of, uh, uh, no matter how you really try to plan it, there's an ad-lib quality to it. There's, there's a point where the performance was not thinking about it, but you see it happen. So then, when you, you're the only one who sees that happening, that means that that performance art is yours. And each one of us will be having an experience, a very special personal experience. And with a play, the theatrical play, it is trying to cut that out. It's trying to make it totally uh, normal for everybody. But no, the performance art, we're just kind of uh, more daring about it. We just sort of throw it in. And we throw in things that we don't even know. And that's where the, the most important things come out, I think. That audiences actually uh, participating in a very big way. And I was thinking, performance art is uh, something that is happening now was happening from way back, but, and I'm, I'm just wondering, how come he's in it? In, in it? <laughs> because, you know, um, 
it's not, it was not considered a very respectful role for a guy. <laughs> you know, it was better to be a military man or something like that. And he's a performance art guy, you know. And I'm just starting to see now that uh, because we are dealing with uh, women's matters, and I'm reading so many books. Well, it seems like it's, I'm forced to read these things without knowing uh, about the suffering of men. And sometimes I cry over it. And uh, there's a thing called suffering of men. Mm -hmm. Call it divorce. Girls. <laughs> and, but they don't even want to say it because there's a tradition that a macho guy should never complain or something like that. And therefore, it's very deep. And I've seen uh, a documentary film of um, uh, men came, came back from war and they lost their legs and arms. And about five of them are just jumping on the bed, you know, to have fun, I suppose. And it's just so sad. But they're not complaining. So I think the next stage of our game is to be totally understanding about each other. And we have to reach our hands to men as well, because they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> On that note, they don't know how to express their complaint even. They can't. <laughs> And then uh, thank you so much to our panelists for a truly fascinating um, discussion. And thanks to you all for coming. Um, please join us again at 2 o'clock where we will have, um, I think, one of the most intriguing subjects of the of the exhibition upstairs is this notion of the spectacle of, dis of destruction. Um, and we will have a very interesting panel which will be moderated by Bob Rosen, who's the uh, Dean Emeritus of the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television. And we'll have cultural historian Kevin Rosario, anthropologist Joe Masco, and artist Ori Gersh, whose work is also upstairs in the exhibition. So please come back for two o'clock. We ask that you take your belongings with you, but try to keep your ticket, which you can use for re-entry. We'll open the doors for seating at about 1.40. So please come back, have some lunch, and come back. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.